All right, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 5. The Bible probably still just flops open to that book, seeing as we've been in it for a little while now. But we have taken, we took a break at the beginning of the year to listen to the Lord talk to us about some equipping that we needed to do this year, some vocabulary words. And now we're going to return to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Before I read the passage this morning, let me just give you a quick survey of some things I want us to look for as we're listening to it being read. So here's the things we're going to try and get to today. I want you to notice that there are clear boundaries in this passage around something called sexual immorality. Years ago, no one would have had to explain that. Today, that, that category feels like, well, who can really even know what's sexually immoral anymore? Well, you'll get a notice in the Bible, clear boundaries here. Uh, secondly, notice the shock at how poorly the church responds to this situation. Anything, the weight of this passage is going to land on the poor response of the church to this situation. Third, notice, and I won't get to this, I don't think, the, the, the community-threatening nature of sin. The term leaven is going to get used. It's like yeast that spreads itself through something. That's a concern. And the last thing we're going to get introduced to is a, a practice of church discipline. That there is such a thing in the Bible where the community of God disciplines its own members. And that's going to get presented and explained to us in this passage. So let's read together beginning in chapter 5 verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's Wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Composting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed Or is an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Lord, you preserved insights, particular stories, interactions with your church, with your people, for generations to learn from. Lord, this letter to the Corinthians doesn't cover everything about the Corinthians, but it covers things you wanted us to hear about. So you wanted us to hear about this event at this time in their lives. And so Lord, help us to receive insight from it by your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me me get a plug in for the way in which we proceed through the Bible. Um, Normally in our our pulpit, uh, probably maybe 70% of the time, though I've not looked at it carefully, we we are what we call expositorily studying the scriptures. So we are just going from book, through an entire book of the Bible, chapter after chapter, passage after passage. And that would be an expository approach to reading the scriptures and and we very much believe in that we also believe that it's valuable at times to topically study things in scripture where we would just 
by God's leading, stare at a particular topic, not just from one particular passage, but from multiple places throughout Scripture to see what's all got to say, God got to say about this. So sometimes that's a kind of a systematic theology study of the Scripture that's valuable. There's other prophetic elements, and that's kind of the series we just came out of is a little bit more of a prophetic element. And what you hear the prophets addressing often when they're writing is the need of the day. Here's what's going on around us today, and God wants to bring himself to touch base on that. And that's what you hear from Isaiah and Jeremiah and other prophets in Scripture. So there's a place in which our culture is preaching a message to us all the time. And there are times in which the pulpit needs to jump into that conversation and say, hey, you know, here's what God has to say about that. And that's what we've done to start the year with, more of a prophetic series. But now we're going to go back to expositorily opening God's word. And here's an, a great value to this. If, if you're a, a preacher and, and you just only do topics, you can tend to fall into the topics that you like, topics that you think are helpful, stay away from ones that are unpopular. This won't be received real well. Let's not do that. Um, if you preach through the Bible, you don't get that luxury, right? You get to chapter five of first Corinthians and guess what you're going to talk about today? kicking somebody out of the church. Well, guess how popular that feels today, in this day and age, right? Uh, and, and listen, pastors, I mean, I'm a pastor who wants to see every human being that we can get around inside this building so we can care for them, influence them, introduce them to God and his word. There are folks who build their church on attractional models, so their priority is to figure out what can we do to attract people. All right, if attracting people were our priority on the basis of figuring out what would get them interested in being inside this building with us, kicking people out of the church probably would not be very attractional. Could you agree with me on that? So we probably would never preach from this passage if that was our priority. But that's what expository study does for us. It pulls us into conversations that God chose to make a priority for us. He could have ignored this in Corinth. He ignored a lot of things in Corinth, didn't write them down. But he wrote this down. And so it's important for us to interact with it. So let's walk through this passage together. Let's get some insights that affect us today. All right, notice a few things with me. And I'm just going to pick the low-hanging fruit here, quite honestly, and just grab the things that are just sticking out. These are just obvious things that should be talked about. This is a passage that's going to highlight somebody is involved in something called sexual immorality. Right? Immorality has in it the word immoral. And it's of the sexual variety. So there could be many varieties here, but the the category that jumps out, Paul is able to stare at human behavior and slap a label on it. That, he says, is sexual immorality. So apparently, we are able to label certain things using these words. Where does Paul get his boundaries? Why does he call this particular activity sexual immorality? Does does he call it that? Because it's interesting. He's going to highlight the fact that this is shocking. Even the pagans don't do stuff like this. So he just highlighted the fact that there's another value system that's out there that the pagans play by. They've got some type of moral boundaries and... They don't even do this stuff, right? So that's the shock, the, the, how far this has gone, how out of bounds it is. But it's interesting that Paul borrows from their pagan setting only to comment on the shock value. Do you think he's getting his definition for sexual immorality from the pagans? Do you think he's surveying the culture and saying, hey, what's the culture into today? What are they okay with today? You know, when I was growing up, people were a whole lot more old-fashioned. But, you know, Paul's older now and things are a little more hip. Things have changed, man. Times have changed. That's not sexual immorality anymore. It used to be. Do you think that's where Paul's coming from here? Clearly, Paul has an idea and he's going to impose it on these other people. Like, how dare you not agree with this? So listen, there's a lot of things about human behavior that the church and all of us need to learn. That's kind of a gray issue. And we should treat it like it's a gray issue. But Paul does not treat this like it's a gray issue. Paul said, this is black and white and I don't get how all you Christians didn't 
notice this and respond to it like it's a black and white issue here. This is out of bounds. And it's not a matter of culturally out of bounds. It's out of bounds with God. The reason why Paul can call something sexually immoral is because morality is owned by God. He owns the franchise on calling something moral or calling something immoral. He's the creator. He's the author. I said a few weeks ago, and this is one of the reasons why we did a message on authority. The creator has authority over his creation. He can step in at any moment and say, that's acceptable and that is not. And that's what he's doing right here. And there's a, there's a lesson here for us. Because today in our culture, it's very hard to label things sexually immoral. Sexuality has found its way into the countryside. It's all over the place. And you're encouraged to experiment with it, to try new things, and definitely to tolerate others' approaches in this category. I just want you to see, from the start, the Apostle Paul were beamed into this place, in this location today, he would not be saying, hey, well, let me just get a lay of the land here before I figure out what to label sexually immoral or not. No, he gets that from God, right? This is where we get our definition. Second, notice this quickly turns from a conversation about sexual immorality. And I'm not even going to go into the details of this man having his father's wife. It doesn't get clarified. Uh, It's more likely that's not his mother because of the way the language is in that setting. It's more likely his stepmother. Uh, It's more likely that his father married, remarried young. And this other wife of his father is close to his own age perhaps and you know that afforded certain opportunities there etc but there's not a lot of detail here about that situation because Paul shifts the conversation really quickly here he goes from that's clearly sexually immoral to what on earth are you people doing now he's going to talk to the church about how they're responding to this how they understand this going on among them and how the community is being impacted by it. So he shifts this in verse 2 to a shock over the church's response. Stephen Um in his commentary says, it's important to note that Paul's focus is not on the case of sexual immorality itself, but on the church's response to it. Sexual immorality is in the background while the church's response or lack of response is in the foreground. Craig Blomberg says, the church's reaction to this affair was as bad or worse than the affair itself. Instead of grieving over sin in their midst, they were actually smug over their newfound enlightenment, their tolerance as Christians. Paul recoils in horror. They must rather remove this man from their midst, from their fellowship. But there is an interesting little phrase here that Craig Blomberg says there that caught my attention. There is a newfound tolerance in Corinth. Now you've got to follow the Corinthian story a little bit here. And we're learning about these guys. The Corinthians battled with pride superiority. They thought they were more spiritual than everybody else. They thought they had insights that nobody else had. When when the Apostle Paul shows up and says, hey, I'm the Apostle Paul, they're like, so what? So? You're just an apostle. We receive insights from super apostles. So they'd they'd trump him. They'd come back at him and push back on him. The most combative letter in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians. It's Paul going toe to toe with these guys, back and forth, back and forth. They don't come under his authority because they don't come under anybody's authority. They think they got some insights on God. They think they see some things that everybody else needs. You need to come learn some things from us. We see some things. And when he used that word, their enlightened tolerance as Christians, I I thought, boy, that's, that's today. There is a sliver of Christianity that presents itself and comments to traditional Christianity from the viewpoint of they've got some enlightenment about God and what God is really like. He's not like what you stick in the mud Christians have made him out to be. He's loving. Well, that's not news to us. Don't come and tell me that word. I knew that word probably before you were even saved. I knew God loved me. 
my question to you is, what do you understand that love to mean? What do you think it means for God to love you? And have you read anything else in the Bible besides God is love? Have you read that God is holy? That's in the Bible too. Have you read that God is righteous? That's in the Bible too. So there's a lot of things that God is. Are you incorporating all that into your understanding of this God? A few years ago, a guy who was a popular pastor, I'm not even sure he's, he's I, don't, I don't want to comment on his salvation, but his fellow named Rob Bell uh, wrote a book called Love Wins. It was just a few years ago. Love Wins, that's what he called it. Love Wins, see the feature of love. And the book basically is a cultural reflection of what he learned from the culture. What, what the culture, quite honestly, demands, if you're going to stand in front of me and speak to me. It demands this from a speaker. It demands that you make God tolerant of whatever it is that I'm interested in doing. And that's what he did. He served up a book. He's a very good communicator. Very influential. He'd written a couple of books before that. Pastored a big church. He writes this book called Love Wins that basically ends up teaching universalism. That in the end, all that we know about God, love is going to win out over that. But again, I'm using that word love. Don't act like you know the definition for that word. You you and I don't know what love is until we read from the Bible to learn what God says love is. For him, love was this ability to just look away, overlook, no big deal, chill, tolerate. And so within Christendom today, there is a movement of like superior insight from some who they understand. God is, God is really just, you guys, you're stuck in some old revelation. God is really loving. And in the end, love's going to win and everybody's going to be saved. Really. So you can see how that plays out now in the sexual immorality category. Denominations today are splitting and fighting over things like whether or not their pastors can perform same-sex marriages. That's splitting denominations right now. Other denominations are splitting over whether or not uh, a practicing homosexual can be ordained as a minister. Do you understand you just don't have to go back too many years before those two questions would never be asked But see, there's a superior enlightenment that's taken place. That we understand that God's love is really code word for extreme tolerance. God is just very tolerant. See, the only problem is you didn't define love from the scriptures. You defined it from your culture. And that's not where Paul's getting his insights. Paul is going to respond to this. Look in verse 3. Paul's going to respond to this by pronouncing judgment on this. He's not going to tolerate this. He's not going to say, hey... That's that dude's preference. And as long as it's okay between him and this other person, I mean, who are we? He does not go there. He pronounces judgment. Verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment. Put this person out. What they're doing is clearly wrong. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't take a survey to figure out whether this is popular or acceptable to the masses. He takes a position like there is a position available to have in this conversation. That clearly this is out of bounds. And everybody should be recognizing it's out of bounds. He doesn't let the church have a big meeting to figure out whether or not we're now going to say that's okay or not. Which a lot of these conventions of national denominations are doing that. And they're going to get together and make a decision about whether these things are now acceptable. Paul doesn't go there. This is not a a decision to be made by us. We don't own the franchise on morality. Only God does. And so if God has revealed something is out of bounds, it's out of bounds. And it'll be out of bounds a thousand years from now. Whether we're living on other planets at that point, it'll be out of bounds then as well. Stephen Elm says, we are uncomfortable With the idea of being disciplined by an external force. Someone or something outside ourselves. And the reason for this is because of rampant individualism. As Jonathan Lehman says, I am principally obligated to myself. And maximizing my life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Now listen, that that statement right there is going to cut like a knife with a couple of blades on it. 
Because if I'm the individual who says, you know what, I've got some views on morality that are a little, little different than what the church traditionally says it should or shouldn't allow, I'm kind of I'm kind of okay with that because I feel like my own happiness, God would want me happy. Have y'all ever heard Christians say that? Like that trumps everything else God has ever revealed. I hear that from couples who their marriage has gotten hard and they don't feel happy in their marriage. And they, they trump the covenant of marriage, which is clear in scripture. You have made an agreement until death do you part. Oh, but I'm going to overlook that because I'm going to trump that with this revelation that would, God would want me happy. God would want you happy. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking for that. I must have missed it. Maybe I should listen to the Bible and maybe I'll hear it. Um, That's not in the Bible that way. But it is in the culture. Rampant individual has taught you are the priority. And so therefore, if God's going to get on board with your life, he's going to want you to be happy. So what makes you happy? Well, you know, the boundaries need to be a little bit over here for me. Because that's kind of what makes me happy. But God's, Paul's like, no, no, pronounce judgment on this thing. Here's another uncomfortable element, though, because for most of us, that's not who we are. The, the response of this judgment that confronts is the collection of the church doesn't have the right to ignore this. The church can't say, you know what, they know, this is where it just gets hard to be a Christian and be in a church. And, you know, I don't want to get involved in all that, you know. I know, I, I know that person. I know that person. I know the person who's doing this in our midst. And I don't want to be involved in all. Do you know the body of Christ is going to be summoned as, a, as an entity together to respond to this person in a particular way? That in, in a particular way, there's going to be some form of shunning that person. And you might say, well, that's not me. That's not my personality. I don't know that I really would want to do that. You know, the Bible's not asking you whether you want to do it or not. Paul's freaking out, not just because this guy's doing this stuff, because the church isn't responding right. So this is very, this chapter is very much a correction on the community of God's people, not protecting the community of God's people. So that's getting corrected here. Let me me skip the insights I put in your outline, insights on the communal impact of our lives with each other. I may hopefully come back to that. But this passage is going to introduce to us something called church discipline in a local church setting. And if you've been through the membership of our church, the membership process of our church, you have been taught in this area. Because this is not a small issue. I will say this, it's, it's not a common issue either. And I'll qualify that later. But this is a significant issue. And the reason why you know it's significant is one, it, it, there's, there's a great deal of clarity here. But, you know, sometimes you and I pick the Bible up and we come to a passage that doesn't sound like any other passage we've read in the Bible. And we can't find a lot else being said about this particular thing anywhere else in the Bible. All right, well, be careful how thick of a book you write on that. All right, if God chose to give a very limited amount of revelation, don't you, all of a sudden, you've got volumes that you can write on that. Uh, write volumes where God has written volumes. And, and write little essays where God has said very little. But God has spelled this out fairly clearly, actually. It's in, it, there's elements of this in the Old Testament and throughout the New. Right, so this is not an obscure moment where we're like, ooh, wow, oh. I didn't know the Bible got so weird. Well, it gets weird in a few places, actually. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. And this is Jesus. This is, you know, I'm not sure where you're at with who Jesus is. This is hippie Jesus, you know. Hippie Jesus getting along with everybody. He just treated everybody. This is Jesus teaching this. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him Alone. Let me I'm just, I have to take this passage apart a little bit. Um, all right, so here's the situation. Sin is going to enter into the relational fabric of Christians. That's what's happening here in Matthew 18. That's what's happening in 1 Corinthians 5. Sin comes into our relationships. What are you going to do? All right, so I can't get past this first line without saying, ooh, 
I know a lot of Christians who don't get past the first line. Much less do the rest of what this Bible verse says. And this is an issue. A significant issue. This may be an issue that you should not have taken communion over. All right, listen to the instruction. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. So who all is going to know about this? Offense, misunderstanding, hurt that took place. Who's going to know? You and him alone. Did we know that passage was in the Bible? Is there a passage somewhere else that teaches the opposite of that? Because I just find the instruction on go to somebody else and tell them first seems to be what most Christians do. Even including coming to your pastors first. Now, I will say, if you're going to disobey the passage here, at least come to the pastors and do it. But do you realize the Bible here doesn't say for you to go to your pastors? Is it wrong for you to go to your pastors? I can't tell you it's not. But pastors are here to guide and shepherd and care for you in moments of need, so I wouldn't slam the door on that. But this Bible verse actually means what it says. If someone sins against you, don't go tell somebody else. Don't go ask for them. Just follow what the verse says. Go and tell the other person alone with them. Oh, I I can't do that. Keith, you don't understand. That's just not my personality. This is not a personality verse. It's not get qualified by, okay, you obnoxious guys, this is what y'all do. The really quiet, timid ones, y'all go tell everybody else. You know, it doesn't say that. It says courage up and go do what you're supposed to do. But you don't understand this person. This person's intimidating. They don't ever receive anything. I don't find that here either. There's no qualifiers here. Well, this person just, you know, they're, they're not going to listen. They're not going to listen. And the last person that went to him, blah, 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 none of that is in this passage. It's just simply a call for obedience. So that's step number one. That's not done well. If you're going to somebody else besides the person who has offended you, you are sinning against God and his process and that other person. And you're probably gossiping as well. Now, what if you do go to that person and they don't listen? Well, read the rest of the passage. It's very helpful. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Wow, that might happen. The person might say, I am so, I am so sorry. I, I, am, I should never have done that. Thank you for coming and telling me that. Please forgive me. Situation solved. But maybe they don't respond that way. But if he does not listen, okay then. Take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established, listen, by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is throughout the entire Bible. From the Old Testament to the New. For situations of conflicting elements between people to get resolved, it takes two or three witnesses to help that process along. And... I would say these witnesses in other places I think are more clear, not as clear right here. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Which means let him be removed from you. Let him be outside of good fellowship with you. I'll come back to those witnesses in just a second. Other passages that are lending some help in this category. 1 Timothy 5. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is using for an elder, but it just got finished using it for anybody. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. 
Okay, listen, that's, that's exactly what Matthew 18 is accomplishing. It is bringing up this issue that at some point, somebody who persists, and that's the key word, a person who persists. That's what you have in Matthew 18. That's what you have in 1 Corinthians 5. That guy is persisting. He's continuing in this sin. So you are to confront that situation. And if he continues and continues in it and persists, then there is an involvement of the church that comes with this. And the church is called upon now to send a particular signal to that person. And we'll see why that is in just a moment. But this, this is a process God created. Jesus Christ taught this process to people. It cannot be one that we ignore. At some point, caring for a person who continues to persist in sin involves distancing, relating to them differently. And Jesus was the one who taught that. But please notice the two or three witnesses there. In multiple places, these two or three witnesses are going to be brought up. Numbers brings it up. Deuteronomy brings it up. Two or three witnesses, ideally, ideally, I think, are two or three witnesses who can actually say what went on in the offense. That's the ideal witness. You saw it happen. I heard you say that. You actually did that. I am a witness to it. Those are the people who are to be called as witnesses. Now, the only ambiguity in in Matthew 18 is these two might be witnesses to the conflict trying to be resolved. That they are called, they don't know what happened, but they got called into the situations to try and listen to both sides. Did you know that the Old Testament will not allow you to render a verdict when there's just one witness? Because it's one person's word against another. You need witnesses who can establish what happened. Those people are to be organized and to be involved in this. If you are not a witness, are you supposed to be involved in this? Doesn't look like it. How many of us know stuff about people's situations and things that went on with them and conflicts that happened between somebody else and accusations and allegations? I mean, now we have the social media, so allegations can just be pumped out there left and right and left and right and left and right. And how many of us as Christians are rendering a judgment because we read it? By somebody else who reported what somebody else said, who reported what somebody else saw. And huh, and that's the second person I said who did. Yeah. So that's two witnesses. <laughs> no, neither one of them are witnesses. They've never talked to the person. They've never listened to anything else but gossip. And they heard enough gossip to where 10 pieces of gossip means it's got to be true. So therefore I validate it and I find them guilty as well. And I'm outraged over this and I want to know how you feel about it. Listen, there's stuff going on in the body of Christ that I have people come and ask me. And they're all riled up. So, what do you, what do you think about this? And, and you'll hear my answer quite often is, I don't know what to think about it. That's a thousand miles away and ten people removed. I, I, I have no idea what all the facts are. If I were to sit down with the two parties involved and listen to them, that's what I would have to do. I would have to hear both sides, explain both sides, and maybe even then I couldn't even render a verdict or a judgment. But I would have to do that. And since I haven't done that, I'm not a qualified witness to make a judgment. So do you want me to be outraged over a topic? Okay, I can be outraged over a topic. Somebody abusing power. I can join you. You want me to be outraged over people abusing power? I'll be outraged with you. That guy right there abused power over this person right there. I I can't go there with you. I'm not a witness. Nor have I heard from credible witnesses who were eyewitnesses to what took place. So don't get confused by this. Because what's happening in social media today is a topic of some just... Outrage is being served up to us and, and the only thing you're allowed to do is be outraged with me. But what, here's where the blurry part is. You, we can get outraged over topics. Every one of us can and we should. But do not 
make the mistake of taking your outrage over a topic to find somebody guilty in this category whom you truly know nothing about. I'm outraged with you, but I cannot render a verdict. And God gave a process for that. I'm going to have to entrust that situation way over there to witnesses who will actually walk through Matthew chapter 18 and will let that process play out in that setting the way God ordained for it to do. The body of Christ would go a long way to learn some of these things. This, This is in the Bible. Can we stop listening to the culture teach us how to do this stuff? It's horrible. It's gossipy. It's destructive. It doesn't mean you have a great passion for that issue. Just, you're kind of just deceived in that category. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Listen, this is, you understand none of these verses are teaching tolerance. None of them. That one sounds like it's coming close, isn't it? Gentleness. No, it's just the demeanor with which we go about confronting and caring for people. But do know these words that are in here. Transgression and restore. Transgression and restore. Those are boundary words, aren't they? Transgression means there's going to be an individual that you're relating to in your life who is out of bounds. That's not a toleration word. Our culture says, hey, well, first off, Keith, there aren't really any boundaries. It's up to that person. Okay, well, that's not biblical. So there are boundaries for things that God has made clear. And if you find yourself out of bounds, then you are in transgression of what God has made clear. And you need to be restored, which means you need to stop being over there. You need to start being over here. So the whole nature of what this is doing is is first acknowledging there is moral and immoral territory in which a Christian may find themselves standing and the church is called upon to respond a certain way. And this is what this passage teaches us. Something really loaded in this section here. Anybody got any concern? You come to this passage and and here's, here's the community judgment. Not only that this is sexually immoral, but here's what you're to do. Paul says, when you assemble... Verse 4, in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present, and the power of our Lord, so you need all those things, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Isn't Satan our, our great enemy? Isn't everything satanic and demonic just things like that? That's, that's anti-church, right? I mean, why on earth would we be doing that? You do recognize this is in the Bible, right? And if you read the scriptures, there are many places in which the enemy of God is a tool in the hands of God. That's what you have here. But but notice what's going to happen in this setting. And and be sobered by it. And listen for the implications. You know what an implication is? It's something that wasn't loudly said, but it's implied. And there's a lot of implications in scripture passages. So this scripture passage is basically saying this. There is this protective place called the fellowship, the body of Christ. And a member in good standing is in this protective bubble, if you will. Although for this guy, they're being told, take him outside the bubble. Put him out where Satan can get his hands on him in a certain way. All right, so if that's the implication of this, are you aware? Now, don't ask me to fully unpack well, what all can Satan do to him. I, I don't know. I don't know where the boundaries for Satan are in that. That's God's business. And, you know, they're not supposed to know that either. It's not like, oh, well, tell us what's going to happen to him first. Now, all you're telling is there's going to be destruction of the flesh with the hope that something of that is going to change him. Right? So that's the great grace and hope in this passage. But notice something here by how you view membership. I just just want to bring this to a membership issue. Next Sunday is our membership Sunday meeting. How do you view membership? Do you participate in the church in a way that you are aware that you are actually being protected from Satan because you are part of the body of Christ in the way in which God has called you to be? Are you so disconnected from it that this passage should make you very, very concerned when you walk out this building? If you're not a part of this church, you're really kind of not a part of any, you should be very concerned 
what the heck does this mean for a Christian who's not in fellowship, who doesn't have and is not afforded the benefits? There are benefits in our being joined to each other. And that's much more of a benefit than just, yeah, I get to hang with my buds. You get to chat in the foyer instead of coming in and listening to the message. Hey, you guys out there, I'm talking to you. Um, get to kind of chill, hang out, you know. This is my peeps. That's what this is, what church is about. It's my peeps, man. Oh, okay, I've got no problem with you finding your peeps here. But it's more than that. There's a spiritual layer of something going on here. That when somebody gets in this category, the Bible calls on you to take the shield away. And make them available for Satan in a different way than they were just moments before you did that. That's what's here. Stephen Um has an interesting thought here. He says, if our relationship to the church is currently one where discipline could not happen to us because we're not members, then our relationship to the church is different than the ideal one laid out in Scripture. We need to be accountable to a community in which we can receive informal, mutually correcting discipline. And in the worst case scenario... We need people to hold us accountable when we are running off the tracks, which is what this guy was doing. We need to recognize the grace of the spurts of informal discipline, right? We just kind of nudge each other. We care for each other. We interact with each other as we go through these places of temptation. When we see the church functioning as a self-correcting ecosystem, we need to thank God for his work among us. When a fellow believer lovingly confronts any of us, we need to receive it as grace, We need to understand that we all have a vital role to play in the the grace of discipline. Each member has committed to maintain and pursue the purity and peace of the church. Seeking opportunities to do this actively and not as a witch hunt. Rather, we are to look for ways we can support and encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. Be grateful for the ways in which God's gracious community is unlike any other institution. But I get it. You're putting this dude out, turning him over to Satan. Dude, where's the love, man? Where's the love in that? That just doesn't sound right. Doesn't sound loving. Craig Blomberg says many will continue to view the whole notion of church discipline and certainly excommunication as repulsive and unloving. Well, is that true? Is that what Paul's up to here? Suddenly, Paul displaced all the love that he has for fellow Christians and he's suggesting this in some angry, destructive manner. Now, church discipline, as in all forms of discipline, I put this in your outline, discipline's end justifies its means. It is after something in the end and it's willing to get some bad press along the way in order to help accomplish that in the end, right? You are to deliver this person, verse 5, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So this is not about, hey, what will make you comfortable right now? How can we just get along right now? This is about looking into the future and say, in the day of the Lord, are you going to stand before God with full assurance that you are his child? You will enter into eternity with him forever. Because it looks like right now, you got no response to God going on. You look dead to God. And I'm concerned about that day. So right now, the agenda takes on a thought about that day. Not just about right now. It's the end that justifies the means. Remember Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's exactly what's going on here. This is a person who's being loved in an uncomfortable way. This is why the title of the message is, Sometimes Love Hurts. If you're a parent here, you know something about that. And if you're raised by parents who love you, you know something about that too. Sometimes love hurts. But that's hard to hear today because our culture has made everything that doesn't sound affirming, appreciative, tolerant, applauding, and giving you total room to do whatever it is that you'd like to do next. That's, anything that doesn't do that is unloving. 
I don't want to get my definition of love from the culture. My culture is blind and lost. I want to get it from the scriptures. And the scriptures say this is how you love the person in this moment of their life. Put in your outline there, Paul does not operate out of a self-defined right of individuals to pursue whatever makes them happy. For Paul, the defining of right and wrong is objectively in the hands of the author who has authority. I'm not going to pull this out, but I'm going to say it more than once because Paul's going Paul's to interact with sexual immorality more than once in this book. It was, a, it was a significant problem in the church. It's a significant problem today. It's hard to even talk about it today because the terms have become so blurry and, and our culture has shifted so much that it's hard to have a helpful, meaningful conversation in this category. So I, I feel the need to say some of these things, especially for our young people. For our young people to be aware that you are hearing things on a regular basis. You are hearing things in school. You're hearing things from other people who are in authority that is simply out of bounds. Now remember, you live in a fallen world, so that shouldn't surprise you. This is a world that's ejected God, that's doing it its own way, that's thumbed its nose at God, and it's come up with its own ideas. So don't be surprised when the world feels like, whoa, that doesn't look like anything God has said, and, and that's what my grandma said, or that's what my relative said, or that's what my teacher at school said. Okay, have room for this. And I'm going to talk about this probably in a couple of weeks. Have room for the fact that the dearest people in your life could be totally wrong. The people you respect could be totally wrong. How are you going to decide that? Because all, the, all your school friends are going with it? Because that, that's what the teacher said? It's a teacher. Okay, respecting somebody is different than believing them. You can respect your teacher, but not believe them. This, this is what, this is an absolute revelation from God that spans time. It's going to be true a thousand years from now. What your teacher said, maybe not. So these are important things. Let me just, I'm just going to present this to you real quickly, and I would invite conversation in this category. We need to have conversation in this category. But my question is, can sexuality be addressed clearly and consistently? Can you even do that? All right, first, Paul is right to speak with clarity on the issue of sexual immorality. He's right to do that. There are clear boundaries and intentions for sex that the creator created, defined, and established, and you are either in bounds or you are not. So I'm going to try and make this very simple, but I think I'm very faithful to the scriptures in saying it this way. This is very simple, but I think it's exactly what the scriptures teach. In your outline, I think this is written out. Sexual activity is an expression of the one flesh relationship that exists between one man and one woman who have entered the covenant of marriage. Clearly, that's what the Bible teaches. If you take sex out of that setting, it is immoral. It's out of bounds. That's what makes something immoral. God created a setting for things. As long as things exist in those settings, they're moral. The second you take them out of that setting, they're immoral. So if you take sex outside of a man and a woman who are in the covenant of marriage and you decide to export it from that and use it somewhere else, you are out of bounds. Whether it's popular, acceptable, trendy, you're out of bounds. That is sexual immorality. A little more detail. If you go outside of that while you're single, while you're dating, while you're married whether you're in a heterosexual relationship or a homosexual, you are committing sexual immorality and you need to come into agreement with God. In our culture, I don't know how this happened, but there's a lot of things that are hard to explain. Somehow, sexual immorality that finds its origins in in homosexual activity is treated completely differently than sexual immorality in heterosexual categories. The explanation is, well, I have same-sex attraction. Like, there is a force inside of me that desires something. 
But that's true of heterosexuals also. Heterosexuals have opposite sex attraction. There is an impulse on the inside of them that makes them want to move toward the opposite sex in a sexual way. So this is not exclusively belonging to one group or the other. This is in both categories. And the same Bible comes around and says, hey, that may be your experience. But sex belongs in one context and one context only between a man and a woman who are in the covenant of marriage. So if you're, if you're experiencing heterosexual attraction, you do not have permission to change the boundaries. If you're experiencing homosexual, same-sex attraction, you do not have permission to change the boundaries. The same Paul who stood and said, that is sexual immorality, would stand to both of these and say, that's sexual immorality too. This, this finds its way into same-sex attraction issues, into gender identity issues as well. And, and I'm going to unpack that when we get a little further into the sexual immorality topic. But listen, in no way am I, am I wanting to, to glaze over these, treat them like, hey, that's insignificant. There are real struggles, there are real temptations, there are real experiences that exist in both of these categories. And they need real grace from God. So if your struggle is in sexual immorality in a heterosexual way or in a homosexual way, in either one of those categories, you you may need some real care and some real help in order to address those issues in your life. But you need to be aware that if you persist in sexual immorality, chapter 5 is describing you. Even though this guy was really out of bounds, even the pagans don't do this kind of stuff. But that's not what made his activity immoral. It was the breaking of God's law that made it immoral. All right, what's the outcome of this? Why are we doing all this? Well... The response to persisting in sin for every Christian, this is simply the same. Confess that it's sin, agree with God, repent and turn from it, and bear fruit in keeping with righteousness. Every Christian is capable of that. And so that's the call, and that's, that's the call that's being given out here. And sometimes it takes, in this case, it took drastic actions to bring this person to this place, if that's what Paul is going to later refer to in 2 Corinthians. possible that the person he has in mind here. In chapter 7, verse 8, he says, this is 2 Corinthians, this is a couple years later. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, But because you were grieved into repenting, if you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, the godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul's prescribed action for the church to take towards this individual was to create an environment where that person would be attracted to repentance, which was the very best thing for them. Don't ever believe that repentance is a bad thing. That's what they needed. And in persistent love, persistent engagement, they refused to respond. So eventually it turns into a church discipline issue where Satan gets involved, shields get withdrawn, people relate differently, not in ugliness, right? Remember, because we're, we're those who are spiritual are seeking to restore such a one. So our heart is still toward this person. Listen, just because just people misbehave in the body of Christ doesn't give you permission to like treat them poorly. We are their rescuers. You don't ever stop loving them just because their behavior got out of bounds or their kids are misbehaving in the way you don't like anymore. Listen, this, that's ridiculous. Sin is seeking to devour them. Are, are you affected by that? Do you care enough about that person to get passionately involved with them? Even if it doesn't mean supporting and applauding what they're doing, but it means going after them as a means of restoring them. And that's what this is teaching us to do as a church. Is that that unloving? 
Um, no. Is it painful? Yeah. Discipline is. It's painful. But discipline has in mind, in the end, this is going to run its course. And that resistance to God is going to get broken down. And you are once again going to be willing to respond to God. And the grace of God will flood into your soul and into your life again. In a way that we all need and covet for everyone that we love. This is not an unloving thing. It's not an easy thing either. And let me just say this. Eric, you can come back up. Um, let me see. I, I don't want to say, and it's not a common thing, but I want to come close to saying, and it's not a common thing. That last little point in your outline there. It's the church may, you can underline that word because it's not underlined there, but your church may also be called to a response. The church. It may, not must, but it may. But it won't always be called to a response, right? Remember this in your outline. Remember, the church is filled with people who are in the process of transformation. They're in the process. They're not done. They're still changing. Incremental growth. A little step here, a little step there. This process biblically includes wrestling, struggling, stumbling, failing, being corrected. We come into the body of Christ and we have unrenewed minds that need transformation. Our minds need to be changed. We are ignorant in our understandings and we need to be instructed. Right, so, so get this. In the body of Christ, there are people who are advancing and going backwards and advancing the next day and then going backwards and stumbling and getting up and stumbling again and getting up and stumbling again. Are you going to get up? Uh, okay, he did, yes. And then going wayward and coming back and going wayward and coming back. Be really careful, depending on your personality. The, I think, the, you, know, you know, they have all these Bible versions. I think I'm going to write a Bible version for different personalities. So that, you know, you can just be aware. The first page will cover what kind of person are you. And, and then there'll be certain passages in certain colors to tell you, hey, lighten up right here, okay? Um, so there are some people who, you know who you are right now. You are so glad this is being preached this morning. This is what, see, this is, what, this is what's wrong with the church, by the way, right? The whole dysfunction of the church in America is because this kind of thing ain't getting preached, Keith. Preach it, man. And I, I, I just stopped you from coming up to me after the service. All right. For the purist here uh, who loves this kind of correction, can you, can you go with me for a second here? The Corinthians are out of bounds all over the place. We're going to move from topic to topic. These guys are setting a trend in screwing up. They're going to sue each other next. They show up to have a covenant meal together and some of them are drunk because they drank all the wine before everybody got there. I mean, these guys are clowns. Can you notice that there's only one chapter and one incidence where Paul puts somebody out of the church? It's not every other paragraph here. It's like, hey, when you're all done kicking that dude out, hey, get this guy on the next bus too. And while we're at it, I'm going to bring this up in chapter 11, but get this guy and that lady out too. That's not what's happening. And, and I've, I've, you know, this book screams at, and I've been around leaders who are, are this way, that their love and their zeal for the church doesn't make room for people to screw up and be human beings. And they get a passion for this, like, you know, if the church really loved God, they'd just shut all this stuff down. we just close the doors. If there was a church that needed their doors shut, we're reading about them. But you find in here, even in 2 Corinthians, where these guys are obnoxious to the Apostle Paul, nowhere does he tell them shut the doors. They're in the process of God being at work in their life. It's ugly, it's messy, it's resistive, it makes advances and it makes steps backwards. So, so listen, please don't think, oh, oh, church discipline, finally, that's a cornerstone. Church discipline is not as common as you might think it should be. Everybody's in the process of changing. And we're walking together in that setting. And when people stumble, that's not a church discipline issue. Like this, this is an issue for persistent resistance to God. 
And you should be convinced at some point that now qualifies for persistent. Because up until that point, we're walking with people who are just like us. How many of you guys have got at least one or two areas in your life that you're not all that different now than you were five years ago? How many of y'all need to come forward and stop lying? <laughs> all right, welcome to the body of Christ, right? All right, so we needed to hear this. But let me just close this in prayer. Why don't you guys stand up with me? Lord, there are categories here that you chose to highlight. You, you put flashing lights on the pages of Scripture, and, and, and we see those lights at different moments. Holy Spirit, I thank you for being in our midst. I thank you for using the Word of God to open our hearts and our minds. I thank you for conviction that comes from you. God, I pray for any who are here this morning. They are wondering, am I persisting in immorality? Maybe there are some here who aren't wondering. They know they are. But they are persisting in a category of sin They've cooperated with it. It's no longer something that they are intending to see it come to an end, to seek resources, help, prayer, power of God, to change and overcome. There's a pleasure in that sin. There's something being pursued. There's some idolatrous craving that's being satisfied. Listen, if that describes you this morning, would you, would you heed this word? Would you right now in your heart turn to God and confess to him? Not just agreeing that what you're doing is sin, but opening up your heart of willingness to him. This is serious. Your issue is like leaven. It will travel through your life. It will travel into other people's lives. It will breed destruction. This issue is serious enough that the God who loves you would remove some protection from you to help you find greater willingness to be broken. This is no small matter. If you are in a place where you are persisting in sin, this morning you need to lift that issue and lift your life to God and surrender and say, God, I will not resist you any longer. I will not do it. I will run the risk of whatever you have for me in the place of this. I will run the risk and follow you. God, I pray for those who are in that place this morning. God, I pray for your power. I pray for the power of the fellowship of your people to encourage, to care, to come alongside, to bring strength, to pray for, to help take new steps of freedom and deliverance. God, I pray that there's not a one hearing this message today who will find themselves in the place where they need the discipline that's in this chapter. But Lord, if that is the case, God, thank you for a hope that rescues even that kind of persistence that travels into the hardest and most resistant of places and doesn't give up on us. God, thank you for that kind of love and pursuit. God, I pray for us as a church body. God, I pray that we will handle the failures and faults and sins that are among us in ways that are just clearly scriptural. God, I pray for any who are here this morning who are unengaged in church. They just happen to be here this morning, but they're really not a part of a church. God, would you change that? Would you convince hearts this morning? That we need meaningful fellowship and connection with others. God, I pray for any who are here who have created an atmosphere of gossip in the body of Christ. Who have mishandled other people's failures and have published them in inappropriate ways. Who have stuck their nose in business where it didn't belong. God, it's harming your fellowship here.
it is a leaven that will travel like yeast throughout our gathering. God, would you convict right now? God, will we go silent in these categories? Will we find ourselves praying for folks, going to those who have offended us personally? Lord, doing what you've called us to do. Lord, these are not easy things to do. Not a thing that we've talked about today is easy. But God, you haven't called us to easy. You've called us to miraculous. You've called us to be lights in darkness. You've called us to resurrect the dead. Lord, this is not easy. It's supernatural. And that's who you've made us to be, oh God. So Lord, would you plant this word in our hearts, in our lives. Lord, make us a people who love each other so much that even these steps are possible for us because the love we have for one another compels us. So Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for our church. Thank you for our fellowship, Lord. Be glorified among us as we walk in a manner worthy of this calling. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys this week.